0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: You are watching First Move. I'm Zane Asher in New York. On this Friday, afternoon. King Charles is paying his first visit to Wales as the new British monarch. These are live pictures outside of Cardiff Castle. The king and the queen consort just arrived about five minutes or so ago. This is right in the heart of the city centre. He's going to be here meeting with representatives from various charities earlier today. He was actually at the Senate, which is the Welsh Parliament. And before that, he was at Llandaff Uh, cathedral for uh, a prayer service, a service of remembrance for his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. As I mentioned, though, they are now at Cardiff Castle uh, for a reception. We will be live in Wales for you with the very latest. Just to give you an update on the king's travel itinerary. uh, It's a bit crammed today because he's going to have to travel back to London later today, early this evening, where he and other members of the royal family will be beginning a silent vigil beside the Queen's coffin at Westminster Hall. Princes William and Harry are also set to stand vigil for the Queen tomorrow. The queue of people, we've been talking about this a bunch, the queue of people wishing to enter Westminster Hall to say goodbye to the Queen to pay their last respects to Queen Elizabeth continues to grow. It is now estimated, estimated to be some five miles long. So many well wishes that, in fact, police were at one point forced to pause entry to the queue for several hours. Officials are now saying that the Queen's funeral on Monday will be the largest ever single policing event in London, the police have a lot of their hands in terms of preparing for that. We will have the very latest on the farewells for Queen Elizabeth II uh, in just a few minutes. But first, an alleged mass burial site found in the recaptured city of Izium in eastern Ukraine. Officials say that at least 440 graves have been discovered. President Zelensky strongly condemning Russia.
2: We want the world to know what is really happening and what the Russian occupation has led to in Bucha, Mariupol, and now, unfortunately, Izium. Russia is leaving death behind everywhere and must be held responsible. The world must bring Russia to real responsibility for this war.
1: CNN has not confirmed who was buried there or how they died. Ben Wiedemann joins us live there. Ben, we are hearing that it was mostly uh, civilians, but Zelensky basically saying that he wants to show international journalists this site in Izium. And as he pointed out there, I'm just going to reiterate what he just said. We want the world to know what is really happening and what the Russian occupation has led to. Ben, walk us through it.
3: Uh, yes. Well, we understand a source tells CNN that the UN Human Rights Monitoring Organization is going to send a team to Izium, and also perhaps later a war crimes investigation uh, team as well to see this site. Now, it's in a forest. Uh, most of the graves are unmarked or just they're crude wooden crosses uh, with numbers on them. The Ukrainians are saying perhaps 440 bodies Uh, approximately in that uh, mass grave or graveyard, but uh, we don't, as I said, we don't have the details on the fate of those who are buried there. Now, keep in mind that particularly in March, there was intense bombardment on Izium while it was still under Ukrainian control. So there's a possibility that there could be bodies from there. For instance, I was in Severodonetsk uh, before it fell to the Russians, and at the time, uh, the morgue in the hospital was full of bodies. Because of the shelling, they really couldn't, ha- they didn't have the resources to bury the people. But uh, certainly what we've seen elsewhere, for instance, in Bucha, the uh, suburb of Kiev, where the Russians occupied it, then left, left behind almost 460 bodies, many of them showing the signs of summary execution, torture, or having been beaten uh, to death. So we'll have to wait to see what Journalists see there what uh, the investigators see, but certainly uh, the pattern has been established about what happens uh, when the Russians occupy Ukrainian territory and what is discovered when they leave.
1: Yeah, Zelensky there talking about the likes of Bucha, the likes of Mariupol. And of course, you can now add Izium to that list. He said that he wants accountability. How does that happen then?
3: Well, the the Ukrainians have made it clear that they feel that this war was unjustified, that it is a crime, and that the Russians should be held responsible for war crimes. Now, can that actually be achieved? That's another question uh, altogether, but certainly the amount of evidence that has been collected over the last more than six months certainly indicates the brutality of the Russian occupation. And what we see on a daily basis is just, for instance, random shelling of civilian areas. There's no rhyme or reason uh, to this madness. So, certainly uh, Zelensky and most Ukrainians would like to see some Russian officials or leaders held responsible if and when this war comes to an end. Zane?
1: If and when. All right. Ben Wiedemann, life for us there. Thank you so much. Ukraine has liberated more territory in just one week than Russia captured in the past five months. Dick Payton Walsh went to a town that was under Russian occupation just days ago. I want to warn you, though, that some of the images in this report are extremely uh, graphic.
4: The darkness is breaking quite suddenly up here, and the road to Russia's border with Ukraine strewn with what it left behind in its panic, including its own. Two Russian soldiers shot dead in fighting about five days ago, yet another sign the Kremlin doesn't care what or who it leaves behind. This is Vovchansk, the closest town to Russia that Ukraine has taken back, and whose vital railways began the supply chain for most of Moscow's war. The Russians, everyone says, just packed up and vanished a few days ago. They've always been so close, so part of life here, any joy is not universal. They were not very good, says Andrei. They didn't shoot anyone, though. The hardest was to see their checkpoints and their Z signs and feel hatred growing in my heart, says Tatiana. They can drink their oil and have their gold and diamonds for dessert, but just leave us alone here. Nastya is sailing ships, she says. Ukraine has been at war all the eight years she's known. I think it'll be better without them, she says. It was uncomfortable having them here. Her parents nearby say fear meant they slept in their clothes all the six months. It's kind of strange here to see how almost unaffected so much of this town has been and how life seems to have slipped comfortably back into normal when the Russians just picked up and left and it gives you a feeling of how normality must still reign just a matter of six kilometres away across the border in Russia. But normal is never coming back, particularly to here, the borderline itself. Russia retreated back over it, but must now live with the hatred it has stirred. The fact that Ukrainian forces are able to push right up to here, the beginning of the border buffer zone with Russia, Russia is just a matter of kilometres in that direction, is yet another calamity Moscow has imposed upon itself. Its opponent in this war that it's struggling so deeply to defeat is now so close to Russia's own towns and cities. A moment long coming, says local soldier Anton. How do you feel walking along the Ukraine-Russia border? Some people have waited this for 8 years, he says. It is the start of our victory. Across the once sleepy fields here, lives and harvests stalled, wilting. Yet another year will come. Nick Peyton Walsh, CNN, Vovchansk, Ukraine.
1: Russian President Vladimir Putin is praising China's balanced position on the war in Ukraine after a face-to-face meeting with President Xi Jinping during a regional summit in Uzbekistan. Putin also admitting that maybe Moscow does not have an unconditional ally in Beijing when it comes to this conflict. Ivan Watson joins us live now. So, Ivan, what are the consequences of uh, Russia essentially not having the full backing, the full sort of unwavering backing uh, of China, basically its biggest international partner when it comes to the Ukraine war?
5: It shows that Vladimir Putin is more isolated than ever when it comes to prosecuting this disastrous war in Ukraine. And it's striking because Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are two leaders who frequently talk about their close friendship. They've met each other dozens of times. uh, And the silence was deafening when they met in Samarkand, in Uzbekistan. uh, And Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, did not make a single mention of the war in Ukraine. He left that up to Vladimir Putin to do. Two leaders united by their dislike of the US. Xi Jinping making his first trip outside of Covid lockdown China in more than two years. Face to face with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin, who quickly addresses the elephant in the room. We highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. We understand your questions and concerns in this regard. Questions and concerns about Russia's deadly war in Ukraine, a shift in tone from the last time these two men met. At the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics in February, Xi and Putin announced a friendship with no limits and called for a new world order not dominated by Washington. But only weeks later, Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, and it has not gone according to plan. Russia's military battered, its economy increasingly isolated. Putin now needs China more than ever. But in his public comments, the Chinese leader made no mention of Ukraine. The White House argues, when it comes to this war, Chinese friendship does have limits.
6: We haven't seen the Chinese do
7: anything overtly to support the effort by Mr. Putin inside Ukraine. Clearly, they haven't publicly uh, condemned it. I think the Chinese, as they watch what's going on here, they recognize um, how isolated Moscow is from the rest of the international community. They recognize the economic costs and consequences that this war is having on the, the Russian economy.
5: Thanks in large part to the ongoing COVID lockdowns of entire Chinese cities, the Chinese economy is also taking a beating something she can't afford to ignore as he prepares to grant himself a third term in office. The Chinese and Russian navies are conducting joint patrols in the Pacific Ocean. But these types of shows of force have been challenged by the fierce resistance displayed by a much smaller military fighting on the battlefields of Ukraine. So, so far, Beijing has been willing to offer Moscow kind of rhetorical support and cover, uh, arguing, for example, that it is the actions or provocations of the U.S. and NATO that forced uh, Russia to invade Ukraine and embark on this disastrous war. Uh, But as we heard from the White House, the U.S. government doesn't believe that China is overtly doing anything like sending weapons to uh, Vladimir Putin to prosecute this war. China has also been buying uh, discounted uh, energy supplies from Russia at record levels. Uh, that's providing an economic lifeline, of course, uh, but we're not seeing uh, an offer right now at this first important meeting between these two leaders uh, for uh, the Chinese government to do anything to, to turn the tide uh, of this war uh, that the Russian military is, uh, seems to be on the back foot in. Uh, certainly, in northeastern Ukraine.
1: Ivan Watson, Ivan Watson, life for us there. Thank you so much.
6: <laughs>
1: Mourners in London have been told not to join the queue the line uh, to see Queen Elizabeth's coffin for the next several hours. Authorities called a halt when the line reached eight kilometers long, which would leave newcomers with a wait of at least 14 hours. The public had been told to hold off until the queue Reopened. No definite time has been given. Scott McLean joins us live now. So wait times at one point reaching 14 hours. Authorities stopped uh, the queue. They put a halt to the queue. But from what I understand, early on at least, people were actually still joining the queue, ignoring authorities' requests. Uh, what's the status now, Scott?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm not entirely certain that they were ignoring authorities' requests The British are uh, quite polite. They like an orderly queue just as much as the next guy. My understanding of what happened is that they closed the gates to the park here. And just as I'm talking, I'll sort of walk forward and you can see just how long the lineup actually is really in both directions. You can look over this way. Uh, Really, I mean, just a sea of humanity here. But uh, they essentially closed the gates to the park, hoping to discourage people from entering the line just because there were so, so many people here. And then they found that there was a queue forming to enter the queue, and so kind of defeating the purpose of this whole exercise. And so they were forced to then reopen the gates to the park. And so uh, from speaking to people here, that pause in allowing people into the queue was a very brief one. And now things have reopened. So even people who got here two, two and a half hours ago, well, they're still waiting in line right now, and they're really prepared to stick it out for the long haul. Just wondering how long you guys have been in line for.
4: Um two hours, two and a half hours.
2: How long are you prepared to stay for? Uh, Until until we get there.
4: And where have you come from? Uh, We live in Great Dunmo in Essex, which is about 35 miles that way. We could have probably walked
5: here quicker than we can get through this queue.
2: (laughs) And I just wonder what's so important about about this event that you guys are are willing to sort of spend, you know, potentially 12 hours in line?
1: Well, there's not many countries that have a queen, and uh, certainly the majestic... You know person that she was 70 years you know plus um she's been a marvelous queen um i've been to the queen mother's funeral here
4: to princess diana's funeral here uh couldn't go to the duke of Edinburgh's because obviously of covid uh, but the least i can do is to pay my respects to a very valid you
0: know,
2: member of our society thank you sir and and i mean that's pretty much what you hear from virtually everyone in this line is that they just want to pay their respects to the Queen, and if you just pan over this way, I'll just give you a quick lay of the land here. We're with CNN, sir. We're live right, right now. Thank you for talking to us. So this is Southwark Park on the eastern end of central London, and this line basically snakes around to the end of the park. Obviously, when you get to the end of this line, then you have about five miles left to go in order to get to the actual Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Hall, where the Queen's body is actually lying in state. So you have This is just the cue to get into the line that doesn't snake around. Um, We're expecting later today that King Charles, uh, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, and uh, Princes Edward and Andrew will be holding vigil around the Queen's coffin, similar to what they did in Scotland. And then tomorrow we're expecting that Queen's eight grandchildren, including uh, the Prince of Wales, Prince William, and the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry. Uh, to be there as well and so uh, the people in this line depending on how long it takes perhaps could see uh, The monarch could perhaps could see some other royals as they as they come in But uh, I think that the pause in the line Zane that we saw earlier was simply just for authorities to try to discourage people from coming But what we've seen so far is that it hasn't really done any of that and the line continues
1: Yeah, people basically saying look I don't mind how long I have to wait. I don't care if I have to wait 12, 13, 14 hours. I wanna pay my respects. It's also about not just honoring her, but also honoring everything that she stood for, everything that she represented as well. Scott McClain live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, straight ahead here on First Move, China raising concerns over Russia's war in Ukraine. We'll have much more on Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping's meeting in Uzbekistan after the break. As Ukraine gains more territory from Russian forces, Vladimir Putin is admitting that China has questions and concerns over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Putin spoke to China's leader Xi Jinping at a summit in Uzbekistan. It was the first time the pair had met since Russia's war began. The Chinese leader did not mention Ukraine directly, but here's a reminder of what Mr. Putin said.
5: We highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. We understand your questions and concerns in this regard. During today's meeting, of course, we will explain in detail our position on this issue, although we have spoken about this before.
1: Jill Doherty is an adjunct professor at Georgetown's University Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies. Jill, thank you so much for being with us. So just explain... From the Chinese perspective, just explain Xi Jinping's hesitancy to give uh, a sort of full-throated support for this war.
6: Well, you know, if you remember, the the phrase that we all think of most recently in defining the relationship was no limits. That was what both uh, President Xi and President Putin said. But that was right before the war began and things have changed. And um, let's take it from Beijing's perspective. You know, you look at Russia right now, they do have military problems. They're being pushed back by Ukrainians as counteroffensive. Then economically, Russia is in much worse shape and getting worse than it was at the beginning. And there has been, I think, the strongest element is this destabilization uh, around the world in many different aspects, you know, with inflation, oil, oil energy, and, and then also the, um, you know, just the, the um, problems that they're having right now in terms of destabilizing many different areas, not to mention, of course, militarily. So I think one example that would be really uh, very telling would be President Putin said yesterday, um, we support China's one China principle, which of course refers to Taiwan. And the uh, next comment he made was criticizing certain countries, which, of course, means the United States, for uh, chipping away or damaging or threatening China's sovereignty. But you have to reverse that and say, what is happening in Ukraine? I mean, the basis for what is happening in Ukraine and for the invasion by President Putin was to support a breakaway region in Ukraine. So this is really counterintuitive, you know. So I think these are the problems that China is is dealing with as it looks at this situation. Uh, it certainly wants to have a stable world in on many levels, and this is really instability that has hit uh, many aspects uh, of the world.
1: So then what does what specifically does does Russia actually need from China? Because China hasn't shipped weapons to Russia so far this year. So what more does Vladimir Putin need and want um, beyond weaponry from Xi Jinping?
6: Well, there are kind of the micro and then the macro, I'd say. Macro on the big level. They want support from China, you know, hugely influential in the world to look um, as if they are part, they're, they're certainly partners, there's no question in that, but that this is kind of the alt, alternative to the Western world, you know, that Russia, China, India, and other countries, I'm sorry, I, I guess we had a little bit of interference there, but um, so they want that, and then directly, they want support from China as much as they can get it, but they are not getting China's support on um, sanctions. China is not supporting the sanctions. And China is not really full-throatedly coming out to support this war. So I think President Putin is not getting from President Xi what he really wants, even more so after this meeting um, in Uzbekistan.
1: And it's got to be disheartening for Vladimir Putin because You're talking about not getting the the sort of full support from China that he's looking for, but also within Russia he's facing, you and I talked about this yesterday, within Russia he's facing increasing criticism from city councillors, from local politicians. Just explain that to us. For him to be in this position where he's not receiving the international support he needs all the domestic support that he needs either.
6: Well, I don't think you can overplay it, really, Zhang, but because if you look at the polls, and I know, you know, polls at this point are very unreliable, but, you know, overall, the trend is that most Russians appear to support this war, or at least accept it, um, at least at this stage. But you do have these really notable exceptions just recently over the past week or two of local um, their local representatives on kind of a city basis. That would be in St. Petersburg and in Moscow who have come out criticizing the war, uh, putting together actual statements by some 50 people saying they're against the war and they want uh, President Putin to step down. Now, that is, I think that's striking. Uh, is it really influential across the country? Maybe not, because these officials don't have a lot of, you know, political clout. But but you'd have to say in just kind of the messaging, that's quite striking. Uh, the latest update on that is that a number of them have been fined, but they have not been arrested. And theoretically, you know, they could be. But I think they skirted the law against criticizing uh, the war and, and talking about, you know, f- or spreading fake information about the war. They have not done that. Their statements were pretty straight ahead, but really um, quite amazing.
1: Right. Uh, Jill Doherty, thank you so much for that really thorough analysis. We appreciate it. All right. Staying with First Move, I'll have much more after the short break. Welcome back everybody to King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla are visiting Wales for the first time since Charles became a monarch barely a week ago. You're looking at live pictures. This is just outside of Cardiff Castle. The time there in Wales is 2.30 in the afternoon. The King is behind closed doors in the castle meeting with members of various charities. This, by the way, Cardiff Castle, being one of the city's most important, most popular tourist attractions. He's right there in the city centre. You can see crowds gathering outside, desperate to catch their first glimpse of uh, the new king. Earlier today, he was at the Senedd, or the Welsh Parliament, um, speaking about his mother. He actually spoke in Welsh a little bit as well. But he talked about his mother's pride specifically in Wales, in the nation. Take a listen.
5: I know she took immense pride in your many great achievements, even as she also felt with you deeply in in time of sorrow. It must surely be counted the greatest privilege to belong to a land that could inspire such devotion.
1: de Santos joins us live now from outside Cardiff Castle. So you Nina, know, I wanna talk about the special relationship that Charles has with the people of Wales because he was, Prince of, he was the longest serving Prince of Wales. He became Prince of Wales at just nine years old. Then he had a sort of formal investiture back in 1969 when he turned 20. He has studied Welsh. He has spent time at Welsh universities as well. Um, just explain the special bond, the connection that King Charles has with the people uh, of Wales.
7: Well, first of all, upon becoming king, upon his mother's death, aged 96, it is his duty and role and an important part of the continuity of the monarchy in this country that he visits all four parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, That's obviously England, which is the larger geographical landmass, also the economic and political beating heart, but there's Scotland and also Northern Ireland that are other devolved nations as well as here in Wales. And as you pointed out, yes, Wales has this specific bond, but also, this tense relationship with the monarchy uh, since, of course, the English crown took over here back in the medieval times, in, in fact, 1282. And for this reason, you do have a very vocal Welsh nationalist movement as well. I'm inside the complex of Cardiff Castle now, and behind these doors we've got the monarch, as you said, and the queen consort meeting various charity members. But when he came in through the gates over the drawbridge, there were big uh, cheers, yes, but also boos from... From the nationalist parties who wanted to protest about having a Prince of Wales at all, let alone a monarch. Remember he's handed over that title now, of Prince of Wales, to William. This is a brief history of why Wales is so important to the monarchy, but also why its relationship is slightly fraught as well with it. Tributes for Queen Elizabeth are everywhere to be seen across Wales. As one of the countries that makes up the United Kingdom, Wales has played a special role in the royal succession. And yet its part in the monarchy's future remains an open question. By tradition, the heir to the British throne is formally titled the Prince of Wales. It's a relic of the medieval game of thrones between England and Wales as the English crown looked to control its Welsh rivals throughout the Middle Ages. This heritage still resonates in Wales, a country with its own language, its own national identity and its history of resistance to English rule.
2: I, Charles, Prince of Wales. So, in 1969,
7: when Prince Charles was to be officially crowned the Prince of Wales, there were fears he could face embarrassment. Just 20 years old and with a flimsy knowledge of Wales's culture, Charles was sent to University College Aberystwyth for a crash course in the Welsh language.
0: There was a a desire to use the unifying appeal to the royal family as a way of diverting uh, attention and support away from people who uh, saw the future for Wales as lying outside the United Kingdom.
7: At the service, with Queen Elizabeth at his side, Charles spoke first in Welsh. Then in English, pledging his service to the people.
5: I am more than grateful to the people of this Principality for making my brief stay so immensely worthwhile.
7: It was a warmly received speech and a pivotal moment in the young prince's life. Back then, Welsh nationalists were mainly activists and academics, but today they're in government in Wales's own parliament, the Senate. After the death of the Queen, the leader of Plaid Cymru, the Nationalist Party, said that the monarchy's future in an independent Wales should be decided by the people. His predecessor put it more bluntly, saying Wales has no need for a prince. The Welsh public, however, are less scathing. A survey in March from Cardiff University said 55% of Welsh people believe Britain should continue to have a
4: monarchy. There is a lot of tacit consent for the monarchy in Wales. Um, they might not like what's happening, they might not like some of the money that the money that they get, but they are willing to continue to accept the status quo.
7: As the line of succession moves along, the title of Prince of Wales now falls to the new heir, Prince William, who says he's honoured to serve the Welsh people. William already has a long association with Wales. As a Royal Air Force pilot, he was stationed on the Welsh island of Anglesey, and it was there that he made his first family home with Kate Middleton, after the birth of their son, Prince George. Well, Zayn, as you can see, I believe in these pictures, inside the doors behind me, inside the castle complex, we can see the... Queen Consort Camilla and King Charles III meeting various members of local charities. If you speak to many of the Welsh people, as I've been doing over the last day, many of them refer specifically to his very active charitable activities here in Wales. And that's uh, given him a lot of plaudits. If you take a look at the crowd, if I step back along here, these are the chosen people who've been lined up to meet their monarch here on his first trip as king to Wales, many of them extremely excited, as you can see, dressed for the part, obviously, in the colour of mourning, uh, which is, of course, black. But I have to say that outside of these castle doors, there's still a lot of people and there are still a lot of protesters. And this is probably the first time that you've really seen that message really questioning the value of the monarchy at this point here in the last few days. We haven't really seen it on quite such a scale in other parts, devolved parts of the United Kingdom as of course many people wanted to make this a moment of respect, not just for the King's accession to the throne, but also of respect for his 96-year-old mother's 70 years worth of service, Zane.
1: Linda Santos, life for us there, thank you so much. All right. For more on this particular visit and also this overall momentous time for the monarchy, uh, let's bring in author and royal historian Elizabeth Norton. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us. I'm not sure if you heard our Nina dos Santos speaking there, but she was speaking about the fact that there are protesters outside of Cardiff Castle now. And that, you know, Wales is obviously a place uh, in the UK that has its own identity. You know, it has its own language. We heard uh, King Charles III speaking some Welsh earlier on today at the Senate. In 1969, during his investiture, that was a time of real sort of growing republicanism in Wales as well. How has he managed to repair the relationship with the Welsh people, given the sort of, um, given the division, given the fact that there are people who still question the monarchy there?
8: Um, there very much is in Wales. and I mean it, it dates back all the way to the 13th century um, with the English conquest of Wales and Wales has always maintained a very strong identity and of course you know, Welsh is very widely spoken in Wales. Um, so there are issues with having an English Prince of Wales. Um, and of course, Charles's investiture back in 1969 called that to the fore. And again, I think this week with Prince William being declared Prince of Wales has has upset some people in Wales, certainly. Um, and it's a tricky issue, of course, because these are English princes primarily. I mean, of course, they're part of United Britain, but, you know, I mean, Prince William is not Welsh um, and Prince Charles, of course, was not Welsh. I think it's always going to be difficult to have an English Prince of Wales um, for some people in Wales but I think in general the monarchy is mostly popular in Wales and actually most people are accepting of um, Prince Charles now King Charles and then of course Prince William and certainly the efforts um, then Prince Charles made to learn some Welsh and to learn about Welsh culture went down very well. And I would hope that Prince William will follow that now that he is also Prince of Wales.
1: There is some old footage of um, uh, the then Prince of Wales, Charles um, at the time, and Princess Diana visiting Wales for the first time as a married couple, Diana really captivated the audience. She spoke Welsh as well. She added glamour and she really sort of, given her title as Princess of Wales, she sort of thrust Wales into the global spotlight in a really kind of glamorous way. I mean, do you think that having Princess Diana changed the calculation, at least for some Welsh people, just given her popularity, I think across the United Kingdom?
8: I absolutely would agree. Um, I mean, Diana was an absolutely captivating personality, hugely popular and certainly bolstered um, King Charles's popularity during the early years of their marriage. And I think she was really important because she raised the profile of Wales on a national stage, but she also did it in a sensitive way. You know, she showed a fondness for Wales and again, a willingness to learn about Welsh culture.
1: And meantime, in London, we're seeing queues uh, outside of Westminster Hall, up to 14 hours long. I mean, one thing I find so interesting is that, yes, even though Queen Elizabeth, you know, um, when uh, her uncle sort of abdicated the throne prior to that, she never expected she was going to be queen, um, she was still somebody who was born into immense privilege as the king's niece. Despite all of that, though, she has seemed to sort of cut across all swaths of British life in terms of how she connects with people. She really does seem to have had that common touch. To what do you attribute that to?
8: I think it was an understanding of people. So she was, I mean, she was quite a shy individual herself, but she was very good at talking to people and sort of spotting the people that she needed to speak to. Um, Absolutely, she had the common touch. Um, I mean, you never see the Queen complaining on footage, Um, you know, she was always, I mean, I'm sure she was annoyed many times, but it it was never on camera. Um, She was always sympathetic, Um, she was prepared to talk to anyone really, so of course she was born into privilege, I mean, she was a princess at birth. and. The period she was born into, of course, was very different times. we not; we weren't far from the Victorian era, but I think that she grew up with an understanding of people. I suspect her work during World War II actually helped to some extent because, of course, she joined um, the services and was involved in the war effort, and I think that probably helped her get a sense of sort of camaraderie and the fact that everyone was in it together.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, a lot of people talk about the fact that she was a mechanic during world war ii and that's her, that was her way back then even as a princess of, of sort of uh, helping in the war effort um elizabeth norton thank you so much for being with us you and i will both be watching very closely what happens on monday as we say uh, goodbye to queen elizabeth ii we appreciate you joining the program all right coming up uber taken for a ride the popular taxi app reporting a security breach it's not the first hacking headache for the firm by the way we'll have details just ahead Welcome back. A stark profit warning from one of the world's largest package delivery firms is helping trigger a fresh wave of selling on Wall Street. U.S. stocks right now falling for a second straight session after FedEx reported weaker than expected quarterly results. The company's CEO also warning that a global recession may be on its way as well. The news adding to the already tense mood on Wall Street ahead of next week's Federal Reserve's interest rate decision. The Fed is widely expected to raise rates by three quarters of a percentage point Wednesday. It's third such jumbo rate hike in a row. FedEx shares currently down more than 20% in early trading. It says demand has slowed to such an extent that it's being forced to withdraw its full year profit guidance, and it believes things will only get worse as we head towards the end of the year. Gosh! What a stark warning! Paul and Monica joins us live now. Uh, so, Paul, FedEx saying that demand for packages worldwide is falling, and that's why they're—that's partly why they're predicting a recession. Just explain why the demand for packages is falling.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, clearly, Zane, we have the ripple effects of rampant inflation that is still a problem in the United States, and of course, globally, you have continued worries about. Uh, some of the uh, supply chain issues that have also caused problems uh, throughout the shipping world and global economy. But I think at the end of the day, Zane, it really comes down to inflation. We all knew that at some point consumers would need or probably want to pull back on spending on things from their favorite online shopping destinations because the prices are just too high. And that has really been a problem in Europe, in Asia, and of course, the US as well. And that's why we're seeing FedEx uh, cut its guidance and taking some pretty dramatic moves to, you know, shutter some of their facilities temporarily, to cut back on uh, flights. It, it is really a dramatic statement from the company. And it's why we're seeing that the whole market fall today, along with FedEx UPS stock plunging as well, uh, you know, unsurprisingly.
1: Yeah, you just touched on this uh, in terms of how FedEx is responding to this guidance. They're saying they're reducing flights, they're temporary, temporarily parking aircraft, they're trimming hours for staff, for example, delaying some hiring plans. This doesn't just affect FedEx. There is a ripple effect uh, that's going to happen from this as well.
9: Yeah, there are concerns, I think, about what this means for the health of the U.S. job market, which, to be honest, has remained relatively robust and i think it's one of the reasons why stocks have been so choppy and falling lately because we all know that prices are continuing to rise and that should hurt the economy but jobless claims came in at very low levels yesterday retail sales still holding up i think the question now zane is those data points are in the past will future numbers as a result of what we saw with FedEx indicating that consumer spending might be weakening, will we finally start to see that impact the job market and retail sales? And, you know, this FedEx uh, warning is obviously an ominous macro sign.
1: Paula Monica, live for us there, thank you so much. All right. Also today, another security breach at the world's most popular ride hailing app reports say a hacker broke into Uber's computer systems, triggering what the company calls a cybersecurity incident. Motives right now still not known, still not clear, but it does uh, follow a reputation damaging breach uh, that took place about six years ago. Let's bring in Rahel Solomon joining us live now. So Rahel, just walk us through what more we know about this particular hack. What happened here?
10: Well, Zane, Uber is acknowledging that they're responding to a cybersecurity incident. They are not, however, saying much more than that. Take a look at the tweet that they posted uh, overnight. The company saying that we are responding to a cybersecurity incident. We are in touch with law enforcement and will post additional updates here as they become available. Now, the New York Times was the first to report this. The New York Times reporting that this breach, Zane, impacts internal communication systems such as Slack, but also engineering systems. The New York Times saying that uh, when this was announced, the hacker, who's believed to be about 18, announced via the employee Slack, I announced I am a hacker, and Uber has suffered a data breach. Here's what we don't know at this point. Uh, was this just an internal data breach? Was this just an internal cybersecurity issue? Or has this expanded to include rider information, uh, passenger information? Uber is a company that, of course, has massive global reach. It operates in 70 countries. And so that's something that we are still waiting to hear from. Lots of questions, but certainly the potential impact of this could be quite large.
1: Yeah, and another headache for Uber, just given the fact that this is not exactly the first time that they've had issues uh, with hackers, Rahel.
10: Right, Exactly, because remember back in 2016, I believe it was, hackers stole data on 57 million uh, passengers and riders. And at the time, Uber had actually paid $100,000 to the hackers to uh, delete the information, to make it go away. But Uber did not disclose this information to those passengers and to those riders. And so it ultimately had to pay a settlement. Uh, That settlement was in the amount of $148 million because of that. So what you're seeing this time is Uber acknowledged that it's happening. But we're not hearing much more just yet in terms of the impact of this. But it could have huge financial implications for the company, as we just pointed out, but also potentially some passengers.
1: Right. Uh, Rahel Solomon live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right. Stay with us first move. We'll have much more after this break. All right, welcome back, everybody. Take a look here. You're looking at live pictures from outside of Cardiff Castle uh, in Wales as King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla attend a reception behind closed doors inside Cardiff Castle. They're attending a reception for local charities. You can actually see the crowds building up outside, eager to catch a glimpse of their new king when he emerges. Uh, shortly after which he's set to go back to London to stand vigil uh, beside his mother's coffin at Westminster Hall. By the way, this is the first visit to Wales that Charles has made since becoming monarch. The king has had a long-standing relationship with Wales going back more than half a century. He was the longest serving prince of Wales in history, had his investiture back in 1969. Uh, The trip to the Welsh capital is the final stop. On the King's tour of the UK, after he made visits to Scotland, obviously, which is where his mother passed away, then uh, Northern Ireland, and of course, England. Uh, Of course, the Queen was one of the most recognised faces in the world. From police hats to post boxes, Her Majesty's image and insignia is visible throughout Britain. A new monarch means that over time, some of that symbolism will inevitably be replaced. Changes are already starting to appear. For example, if you pay tax in the UK, you're now paying His Majesty's revenue and customs. And despite the decline of cash, the Queen's face appears on banknotes and coins issued in both Britain and abroad. Replacing them could, of course, take years though the Royal Mint hasn't issued a timeline yet. The Queen's likeness can also be found on currency in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and beyond. And let's not forget Elizabeth II's uh, insignia stitched into tens of thousands of police uniforms. Eventually, that will be replaced with Charles's. All right, that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. You're watching CNN.